Hello and welcome. Welcome to the Trauma Resonance Resilience Podcast and my name's Lisa Cherry and I would be saying to you that I'm your host today but today I'm not going to be your host because today I've asked a very wonderful person if they wanted to interview me about the book that's coming out soon, Conversations That Make a Difference for Children and Young People. So I'm literally going to take a step back now and I'm going to hand over to your host, Kathy Evans, CEO from Children England. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Lisa. It's particularly lovely and apt that we're having another conversation. You're one of my favourite people to have a conversation with. And having done one of your wonderful podcasts, I hope I can live up to the way that you make conversation flow in these. Um, so a conversation about conversations that make dif- make a difference with children and young people. I've had the privilege not only to read the book, but to be asked to write the foreword for it. So um, I'm, I'm a, a bit of an insider. I already have a sense of what's in it. Um, but I'm going to try and ask questions that will share with everyone else why it's something that they will really want to read when it's out. Um, and I'm going to start with a question that Zara Clench posted uh, on your Twitter thread about this session, and she and it's a perfect opening question. What inspired you to write this book that's so needed? Wow, yeah, what a great question. Well, I feel like I'm going to disappoint people because I wasn't inspired to write the book. Um, in the sense that I didn't think I didn't have the idea to write the book. Um, But as you know, part of the podcast um, is around conversations that make a difference and having conversations with people across sectors, across disciplines, whether working with adult services or children's services. I'm really interested in a much more holistic approach to working with people in distress. And so what happened? What happened was um, lockdown happened in March and... um, for, for all of us, in, in very different ways and with varying degrees, things changed. Mm. And um, in April, so about, yes, about three weeks um, into lockdown, I got um, a, a message, an email from Routledge saying to me, absolutely love the podcast, got a really great idea, what do you think? And as soon as they said the idea to me, I was like, of course, that just makes so much sense. Why wouldn't we have those conversations that make a difference in written form in a way that kind of accompanies my training, speaking, like the whole lot. It's like the handbook, you know, that I want to have in my hand to kind of pass people when they've got more questions and more you know, queries and more worries about how things would be in their setting and how would you make things work in their context. So, you know, yes, I'm deeply inspired now, um, but at the time I was kind of more worried about how I was going to live uh, because of the uh, because of lockdown and because my business is about people and travel. Um, but uh, what what sort of transpired was I said to Routledge, listen, I would love to do that but I have to get it into you by the beginning of September because I start my defil in October and I can't work full time (laughs) to defil and write a book 
it's just not possible. So that was the the caveat around it that I had really, I suppose, five months to get this, pull this project together and, and get it off to Routledge. And, um, and, and that I did. And that you did. Um, now, I, I, I know that we say that we shouldn't judge a book by the cover, but this is a very beautiful book cover, and I know that it's actually quite significant. One of the one of the one of our many beautiful conversations that we've ever had was all about the symbol symbolism and significance of trees. Um, and as you uh, you know, you've been enthusiastic in supporting our work around our child fair, our vision of child fair state that's a tree. And I know that that tree uh, is not only a beautiful illustration, but I know that it's got real significance for you. Can you tell us a bit more about? your beautiful cover and the tree that's in it. Yeah, I mean, God, the, the, the cover is astounding. And I, I imagine there is a bit of toing and froing going on in the background because um, they'd have known that I'd have been really quite vocal if I hadn't liked something. Um, but the tree is really symbolic in so many different ways. It's symbolic because there are illustrations in the book that are about... Uh, seedlings they're about growth uh, they're about strength and so when they designed the cover they took some of the parts of the illustrations and created something not least the sycamores mm. um, floating down and and the words the values going up the tree trunk which I absolutely love so the things that really resonate when we're talking about making a difference when we're talking about really understanding the world through a trauma lens those words of connection and compassion and empathy going up the tree trunk into the life of the tree I just thought was genius and the little sycamores floating off in their strength um so when I when I saw the um the, the cover I was just blown away really because because let's face it Routledge are quite sort of um I'm whispering you know like we're talking quietly together <laughs> but you know it's a very kind of quite academic um publisher so for them to go off and make this beautiful tree and um I just thought was was genius absolute genius I just think it's beautiful and it's such a such a I, I don't know whether you would see this, but I think it's so you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, convey, it conveys Lisa to me. <laughs> I, want to, I want to ask you, why, why do you say that? Why do you say that? I don't know. I, you know, I saw your I saw your excitement about the forthcoming cover that you couldn't share yet. And I was thinking, what on earth could that be? <laughs> and when I saw it, it just, you know, it just looked like something that if you were if you were an illustrator, that's what it, we, you would paint and I and I can't I don't know how to put it better than that I think that's lovely and I think that that's what the book felt like to me that actually they hadn't just captured the contents and the essence of the contents but they had captured something of the author you know the the author of it the author know? yeah and that's quite that's quite a skill I think really it is and and so I had a huge reaction to reading this book so uh, you know I, I I'm a I'm a lover of good conversation and I've put a lot of effort into that. But the only it struck me only reading your book, it really struck me that in all of the different kinds of professional training that I ever did in working with children in children's homes, in 
uh, working in secure units, nobody taught me or even kind of introduced the topic of how to have good conversations. Mm. Um, uh, we we looked at it when I was training as a counsellor. And, you know, heaven knows you can't do counselling if you haven't thought about conversation. But why would that? I, it, it, it brought home to me, why on earth aren't we talking about good conversations in teaching, in social, in wider social work? And so, so that was such a powerful impact for me. I, I wondered, you know, I mean, I, I, and you've used conversations as the means for introducing people to lots of evidence and practice uh, as well through the structure of the book. Can you tell me about your your beliefs and your experience of, of great conversations and how rare it is that we talk about that? God, what a great question, Cathy. There was you worried about questions, but that's an absolute great question. Um, I think there is um, something for me about conversations that create internal shifts because we develop different narratives about the things that have happened to us because other people expose a different view of that to us in a deeper conversation. So we can have conversations where we say, so how are you? And you go, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm doing well. Or we can say, but how are you today? What's going on for you today? And, 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 and we start to then have a different conversation. And I think one of my favorite conversations was a conversation that I had publicly that was never recorded because it wasn't allowed to be. That actually, it feels very resonant to bring up because um, it was with Eunice, who's in the book, and who um, writes, I think she's the first chapter after my chapter in the book, a conversation that we have together. And um, it was a conversation that we had at Allthorpe House for a charity event, which was um, obviously very grand and ended up, you know, we were all at the dinner table with Charles Spencer and Lady Spencer and, and lots of other people. And it was it was all a bit surreal, if I'm honest. But the purpose of being there was to have a conversation with Eunice on a kind of platform uh, with a, an audience of predominantly social workers. And we weren't allowed to record it because it was in Althorpe House. But at, actually, there was something about it not being recorded, which I was a bit annoyed about because I just thought it was gold. But at the same time, it left that conversation in that space, in that mm. time, in that moment. Because, of course, if we had that conversation, that would be entirely different. But we were looking at the relationship between um, Eunice as the social worker and me when she knew me as a child. And that's quite a rare thing to observe, I think, as a practitioner, to look at two practitioners having a conversation about something that had happened 30 years prior and, you know, how you were still in, how you were having now a different type of relationship and an exploration Um with the beauty of hindsight, adulthood, life experience, wisdom, etc. So I think that that conversation really highlighted something for me. But I think the really important thing about conversations is that they have the capacity to reduce shame because they bring connection. And they bring connection, um, again, thinking about particularly um, the care experience prior 
to social media and a lot of the connections that we've seen now in the last 10 years, I mean, that's a very new thing. Prior to that, you might never meet somebody who had those experiences. And so conversations then become something else because they become about saying, this is who I am. You receiving that with empathy and love and saying, this is who I am. And us both being able to say, wow, <laughs> we share something. Mm. I'm not alone. I'm not alone and I'm not and I'm not a strange person, and I'm not abandoned, or I'm not ashamed, or all those other kind of things that I think conversation can can aid moving away from and changing that narrative to one of connection and humanness and, yeah, and, and love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that, that I, I was struck by as I was reading it was the thought of how many exchanges of words take place in professional practice that aren't really conversation or aren't thought about as conversation. So, you know, you you were just saying, I mean, that's such a, I'm, I'm still sitting and thinking about the reducing shame through connection. But how many, for particularly for children who, who have been traumatised and may be going through these systems that have all sorts of, conversations as in I ask you questions and you need to give me answers but that aren't being thought about as conversations how could your how could reading your book inform some of those uh those conversations that aren't being done in a way that can make a difference for children young people well I think the the real gift of the book actually is that it's full of practice yeah absolutely full of um, examples of different environments, different um, settings where you can practice um, relational approaches. And, and of course, when we're thinking about relational approaches, a conversation is ultimately um, relational because it's something that we're having together. But I guess your question is also about the quality of that conversation mm, yeah. and, and, and how how we ensure that we really utilize those moments and really make use of those opportunities. And I think it's very difficult to talk about relational practices without talking about reflection. Mm. You, know, you have to have that opportunity to reflect, reflect that you're in that type of conversation, um, reflect that it could have gone better oh, it went really well, what was well about it? And, and that's been one of the great tragedies, I think, in that I've observed in lots of settings, really, where space isn't made to think. It's not made to reflect. Supervision becomes a, what did you do with this case? And what did you do with that case? And, you know, people are reduced to being called, you know, a case. And it's about yeah. getting through that and... You know, so I think reflection and, of course, the other thing is about language. What language are we using in those conversations? Are we using the language of connection or are we using a language of, around disconnection? Are we wondering about speaking in acronyms all the time? You know, how, how, are, we, how are we using that conversation to, to... For me, the question is, how are we using that conversation to create connection? And creating connection is sometimes about somebody saying, I don't want connection with you. 
and that being okay as well. It's not always about this end goal of having this wonderful relationship that's all about healing. For some people, the boundary of saying, I don't want to have that relationship with you, you know, is massive because it's recognizing, A, that I'd like a relationship, but also what sort of relationship do I want to do my healing in? Just because you've been allocated to me, mm. you, know, you might not be the person I want to do that with. That's a boundary that we should be rejoicing in that boundary, you know, and, and figuring out a way of, you know, um, relishing that somebody has set that boundary, but also thinking about, well, how do we work with that person then to find them the person that they will feel that they can have that relationship with? Just just listening to that and and really in my in my mind just thinking what how we would have to change some of our systems and our services to make space for that i keep i keep thinking about power um not just space and and how hard it is to expect any child but particularly a child experiencing trauma to have the assertiveness to say i don't want this from you i don't want to have that conversation with you Mm-hmm. And and of course, a good conversation is equalizing and connecting. But what are your thoughts about how power interacts with the conversations that happen with children and young people and how we how we might need to reflect on that? Oh, God, absolutely. And I think system change is. um <sighs> Is an agenda is a continuing agenda item, right? You know, thinking about systems and how we change them and what do they need. And we haven't done that for a very long time. Mm. Mostly what we do is we say this bit isn't working, we put a plaster on it, then there's another thing to look at. We put a plaster on that. But actually, I mean, one model that I talk about a lot is an interdependence model, um, you know, which is very much about how do we create much more community-based approaches that mean that your service use is not down to your entitlement to that service by way of a list of criteria, but that actually we have mechanisms in place in the community that mean that we have a longevity of relationships uh, to grow and build for children who don't have those automatic networks that you would have from stability and being part of a, a bigger family. Mm. Um, that's where I think we're not really thinking strategically and we haven't, we haven't done that. Um, and the power dynamic is often p- what's playing out with the adults you see who work in systems we have the power dynamic with the child and then of course that's often what's going on um, with the people working around the child and then and then the senior managers with their managers and then those people with with government with local government and and on it goes Um, and I I, you know I can't sort of profess to have the answer otherwise if I did we would have sorted all this out by now Um, but you know my hunch is that somewhere in that in that hierarchical structure that we operate within um some somebody some group of people get to a place where they say we're not doing this anymore uh we're going to try and do something very differently and those are the people i've put in the book Mm. that's why you are 
in the forward. That's why I have a couple of schools in there. That's why I have a particular fostering agency. That's why I've got somebody who's looking at the um, care of social workers. You know, every single person in there, that's why I've got someone in there from UNICEF. Every single story in there, conversation in there, sorry, is um, they are, to me, those people within all of those systems who stick their head up and often have to be unpopular for a period of time. Um, and they say, we're not doing it like this anymore. We're going to try it like this. Yeah. It's one of, it's one of the many things I loved about the book is that, is that, and, and about your practice and your interests generally is that, it's so child-centered that it, it takes you to wherever children are rather than being a specialist in therapy or a specialist in the care system. It's about anyone who cares about children and mm. how they are, how they affect them. I wondered for our listeners, whether you could just tell, tell us a bit more about those different, what difference does it make to have good conversations at school? What difference does it make to have good conversations in social work for the children and young people? How do you do it in practice in the way that you've you've been able to gather? Yeah, well, I mean, it's profound. Uh, the difference is profound. If, if you think about a conversation that you had at school that left you feeling, um, we could go either way with this, that left you feeling incredible or left you feeling horrendous, you can remember those conversations. I guarantee you anyone who's listening takes a pause and has a has a think back, particularly at school. And finally, we are shifting about how we think about uh, the importance of school. I think the pandemic has really opened up an opportunity in that regard. So if we if we can remember those things, then how do we want to be remembered? Mm-hmm. And I think I think the thing is is that people don't understand that for children who need those relationships outside of the home to be profound, they are life-changing. You know, as a child, if you have your network, you are plugged in, you know who you are, you know where you come from, you know who's got your back, you know people think you're beautiful, you go to school and you have a crappy time, it is going to, it is going to affect you, but essentially the roots of who you are, let's go back to the tree, yeah. the roots of who you are are grounded and there is a, a something to connect back with at some point, even if you go off kilter, okay? Um, for children who don't have that, those relationships outside of the home are everything. And I don't think people really always understand that because in order to understand what it is to not have those relationships... You have to think about what it would feel like to not have the relationships around you of the people you love. Now, who wants to sit and think about that? Mm. So the depth that you have to go within, I think, to really imagine what it might be like to not have those relationships is the place that you need to go to understand how important the relationships are and therefore how important what you say is um, and when I when I asked adults who reflected back on their care experience and having been excluded from school, who their special person was, they all 
um, mentioned a teacher apart from mm. mentioning a social worker. And the social worker that they mentioned taught them maths and English. So for me, there is something really profound about that relationship within school. Um, with regard to the social worker relationship, I think that has become a very challenging um, relationship to have. Caseloads are very high. Mm. Um, uh, there was, I saw a piece today uh, that they're really at breaking point because, of course, families that have been struggling in the pandemic are really, really struggling. And I don't, I don't think that social workers are given enough opportunity to build relationships. Um, but that's because I'm all about relationship-focused practice. <laughs> so um, uh, connected to that, but also of the moment, uh, you know, uh, you said you started writing this book on request during lockdown. So I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to remember anything from before lockdown, apart from our coffee. <laughs> um I'm, I, I was I found myself, you know, while I was reflecting on the significance of great conversations and particularly those ones that you just mentioned in terms of remembering the outstanding ones from my childhood at school or, you know, with with relatives. Um, I, I, I There's so much about good conversation that is uh, body language and attentiveness and eye contact and all of those cues. And I'm I wonder if you've been thinking or reflecting or what you've been learning about maintaining or creating good conversations through this this single window portal that we have at the moment both you know for for us as as people and practitioners but particularly for children and young people um, during lockdown I love that you've brought that up because of course so much communication is in the body and actually you know when we're thinking about the trauma that we carry you know we carry that in the body so mm. if we don't the body in front of us because we're living this life where everyone just has you know shoulders a neck and a head um it's very difficult to actually really get a sense of somebody that you're working with or in whatever capacity that is just somebody that you're speaking to right now you know um i think um certainly i've continued to work online and one of the things that I have done is try and be much more energetic uh, when working just to kind of keep that connection going. But also while giving people the space to have a camera on or off so that they feel safe, also making explicit that if you do feel safe with your camera on, please have your camera on because I need your face. <laughs> I, need your face. I need some eyes. I need some smiles. Um, I need some nods. Um, and so I think that's been really interesting. And I did um, at the beginning, somebody was I was working with an organisation and they were telling me about young people they're working with who would only let them see the top of their hood. So they had their hood up and then the, the camera kind of came up to there. So you just <laughs> just had the top of their head. And I thought what would be really interesting is in a few months time, if you've got down to the nose area, you know, then you'd know that you'd kind of... <laughs> this is progress. This is progress in an online relationship. But yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'm i not of the view that um, we're not going to need to do a lot of um, social recovery mm. work. And I think 
part of that social recovery work is going to be about how to be together again. And I say that as a really, really social person who gets quite anxious now if I have to go into a supermarket about how close people are to me, the fact I can't see people's faces. Um, So, you know, that I think is going to be something we're going to need to be very gentle and kind. You know, we talk about lifting, you know, lifting the... um, the uh the lockdown gently and slowly but I think we need to like realign with each other again and if you've started a relationship with a child or a young person online I think we need to be having conversations about okay how do we make this real now how do we change the relationship to an online one because a lot of children and young people have been they've been literally living online all connection has been online we're not talking about the impact of that and the subtle nuances that you gather through being in the room with somebody were things that I was concerned about before lockdown with regard to children and young people um you know how do you yeah I mean just a whole range of things and so I think now that is going to be something else that we're going to need to um think about mm. and and be explicit about and have a conversation about you know because yeah. there's, there's so much talking we don't do and there's like there's all the obvious things that we don't make explicit and people think that we don't need to you know because they're allegedly obvious but actually you know just because something might be obvious to me doesn't mean it's obvious to you you know and um when we don't have conversations we're not going to start we're not going to find that out mm. Yes, I, I I found myself thinking there's a whole compendium of conversations about what we've all just been through that we need to work out how to have with children and young people in a way that's not uh, another kind of curriculum exercise, but is is a is a dialogue, um, and I, and I haven't really seen much much attention being given to preparing for that. Preparing is all for it. I'm yeah. also really conscious of how many people are having to experience loss in a in a context where many of the ways, particularly conversationally, that you could deal with grief yeah. aren't really available. And that sense of being in the same space as the person whose body is grieving. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you know there's a lot of work we need to do with your book isn't there (laughs) there really is but I think the thing that you've just really alluded to there is that conversations actually aren't aren't just about words yeah and that's what we're missing when we're not in the room with somebody um maybe some people might think we could do it on here maybe we could um but actually when we're in the room with somebody and we just be with them without words or we do something that we know releases built up toxic stress and trauma. So we do some music together or some drumming together or some mm. sport together or, you know, all of those things that we can do that are um, rhythmic and repetitive and somatic in the body. You know, they're the things that, that we, we are communicating with each other, um, but not with words because we have to be in sync with each other I have to follow the flow of what you're doing and and work with that um and I have to feel 
whatever your energy is bringing into the room and be okay with it. And that that stuff is that's deep stuff. And um, yeah, I miss that working with people directly. I miss working with the energy that comes into the room in that way. We can do it a bit on here, but it's mm. not. One of the things I've really noticed is different about how how you can have conversa- good conversations through this portal is how different it is to allow space for silence. For some of the reasons that you just described, silence when you're in the same room with someone can be other things. But sometimes silence in this is like, is has your broadband gone? You know, can you still hear me? Have I un- accidentally muted? But but it does not occupy the same conversational role. Uh, 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 or or perform as as valid a function if you like uh, that's very, you thought... yeah that's yeah. very insightful yeah um and and it's the same as well that natural kind of um conversational flow becomes what just happened then where i talked over you and you, yeah. you, and, you know it's very stilted um and has different connotations, you know, does it mean that I'm speaking over you? Is this a good time to come in? Have you finished? Are you on mute? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and if, if you're a child and you're wiring up at the speed that children do, and that's the level of communication that you've been having for a lot, you know, for this year, that's going to have a particular way of uh, adaptation. I have no doubt about that. Um, and we don't know we don't know really what that's going to look like. And so relational approaches become even more important as we come out of uh, the other side of this, which I'm really hopeful that by the end of this year, we will be living something close to uh, a life that we understand. Mm. Which... You know, I, don't, I think anyone who's known you to date will not be surprised that your book is entirely about supporting trauma-informed practice. It's a, it, a it's a huge issue still across the children's sector, isn't it? And uh, and there are lots of debates about whether or not we've gone uh, to the wrong direction in terms of ACEs, but there does seem to be wholehearted support for understanding how trauma impacts on. Uh, any person's ability to relate, to create relationships, but also to inhabit systems that are not trauma informed. Can you tell me about what, you know, this, this is going to clearly, this book is clearly going to land in that space. <laughs> what, what do you think it will do? Who, who do you hope will read it? What do you think it will do in that, in that agenda? I mean, I think, a variety of people will really enjoy it. I mean, I certainly want students in practice who are in uh, courses around social work, child and um, youth, um, child development, youth um, studies, um, social work, uh, education, um, all of those um, aspects, nursing, you know, to be reading the book. But I also think that it will be hugely valuable for people who are quite far on the journey as well in terms of exploring what are we doing? That's that we're obviously doing that. That's going really well. What more can we do? Because the whole issue about being trauma informed is that it's a continuing mm-hmm. journey of reflection and um, 
and exploration into your practice and into your organization and into your systems. Um, and I also think that it's it will be a good book for people who want to kind of get involved in relational stuff, but maybe they don't work in a space where they're okay with it. But what does it look like so that I can go informed? I mean, there is, you know, it has got a lot of references in there, a lot of reading. Um, it's academically underpinned. Uh, my chapters are. So I think that gives people then a lot of, um, scope for arguing a position I always think you know we can you can argue a position if you have read enough about the subject you know so um I think there are so I think there'll be an audience as well that I just haven't even thought of <laughs> that there will be people who will pick it up accidentally um and think wow yeah this makes so much sense to something that we could do in our service or in the way that we work so that's my hope, really, um, just just to have people in that continuing space of thinking about practice. It's, it's a research into practice um, space. You know, it's, it's, it, it brings all of that together. Um, so that's my hope uh, for the for the readership. Uh, yeah. Did you have a particular kind of reader in mind that you were writing for? Like, were you, did you? No. no. Uh, and I say that because um, if I'd have done that, I would have had to write a book that was either completely towards um, someone who didn't know a lot about it or completely towards somebody who knew a lot about it uh, or completely towards someone who was very angry about it and doesn't want to think about relational approaches. And I think by just having that that kind of, broadness um, around uh, trauma attachment and adversity in practice it means that wherever you are on your journey uh, there's something in there for you whatever it is you're thinking about whatever knowledge it scaffolds on top of mm. there is some there will be something in there for you and so that that was really my thinking when I thought about the readership I'm sure that the publisher has been much more thoughtful <laughs> about the readership <laughs> um, but I just really wanted to get those conversations into the space I mean one I, I think I told you this after I'd read it but one of the things I wasn't expecting it to do was to make me think a lot about the conversations that I have in my private life mm-hmm. not just for about work and how both significant they have been to to me over the years um and how aware I am of the damage that can be done by 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 bad conversation with people um in that have been in my life and uh, you know I know that's a that's an unintended consequence (laughs) but I I I think um there's real value in thinking about doing conversation well as a personal trait to be developed through life and one of the impacts that I, I, I started thinking about was how little we te- we talk to children about how to have good conversations. And, uh, you know, not just how important it is, as your book emphasises, for adults to know how to have good conversations with them, but what the benefits would be for children learning as early as possible about really good conversation skills for themselves. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, God, you know, let's be really compassionate towards ourselves here, you know, and I want the reader to be compassionate towards themselves too. I've had some terrible conversations that I've started and ended and been involved in and, 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 you know, um, and I've equally had incredibly good conversations. And I think that's really uh, something that I want people to feel, you know, when we know better, we do better. Mm. I'm, I, I've just had a district nurse arrive for my dad. <laughs> Sorry. Listen, Kathy, it has been fantastic talking to you. And I am, and, and, and actually for the listener, I know that you're at your dad's and you're looking after him and you took the time out to speak to me today. And I really appreciate that. Well, I do have a couple more questions, but I but I just would need to go and uh, attend to the man who taught me about conversation and did a really good job of it from, from early on. But yeah, it's well, been wonderful, you Lisa. Have a part two another time. Let's do that. All right. Listen, Kathy, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I'm excited about everyone getting to read your book. Thank you, love. Take care. Thanks, Lisa.